last week, we were in uh, Genesis chapter 37. This week, we'll be in Genesis chapter 38, and we will go through all 30 verses, get through this chapter. Next week, obviously, Genesis chapter 39. But before we get into the teaching, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the opportunity to come here and hear you and learn from you and grow in you. God, this is such a such a crazy chapter. Lord, <laughs> had me asking a lot of questions, but God, you're faithful uh, to bring understanding and I pray that we would pull uh, from this section whatever it is that you might have for us, that you would truly speak to our hearts and encourage us, inspire us to live our lives for you. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Pray that your spirit would move in power in this church, in every single heart here. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you recall... Last week in Genesis chapter 37, we spoke about Joseph and how he had this problem with entitlement. In fact, the teaching was called the entitled child. And we see Joseph was the favored son of his father, Jacob, and he had the coat of many colors or big sleeves. We're not really sure which it was, but we know that coat was uh, significant because it meant that Joseph was the prominent son. He was the favored son, and he let people know that he was the favored son. And his brothers didn't take too kindly to this. They, in fact, hated their brother Joseph so much so that they threw him in a pit and then sold him into slavery. We discussed about how a quarter of the book of Genesis is dedicated to the person of Joseph, which is really interesting and I think very inspiring as we'll continue through his story. But right now, tonight, there seems to be a break in this story of Joseph. See, between Genesis chapter 37 and Genesis chapter 47, there's about 22 years that pass from Joseph being brought uh, to Egypt, sold into slavery, and then Jacob, his father, finally being brought to Egypt. And throughout these chapters, we really don't see much spoken or written about the other sons of Jacob. It appears that there wasn't much to be said about the men that started the 12 tribes of Israel, but we have here a certain story about a specific son, the son Judah. And this is really, other than the brothers coming back to Egypt and trying to get food, which is really more about kind of Joseph's story, this is really the only uh, story that we have about any of the other brothers other than Joseph. In this story, in this section, in Genesis chapter 38, it's like kind of a side story. It almost seems, when you first read it, one disturbing, it's very disturbing, 
But secondly, it looks, it, it seems to be a little out of place. And when you read it, it's like, God, why, why'd you put this chapter here? Did like a scribe mess up? Did Moses accidentally do this? But when you look at the big picture, when you understand the full context of the scriptures, this story has a lot of significance because what comes from this story? Now, Judah, in this section, Genesis chapter 38, he's going to make some mistakes. But we'll see that God is ultimately going to use Judah's mistakes for his glory. Which brings me to the title of this teaching, God Uses It All. God uses it all. Nothing goes to waste with God. God will use our failures for his successes. And that's what he's going to do here in this chapter. He's going to use a failure of Judah's to bring forth something very special that's specifically a success of God. In Genesis chapter 38, picking it up in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass at the time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Herah. So we don't know exactly why Judah departed from his brothers, left his family. It could have been, remember, he stuck up for his brother. At least he didn't want to kill Joseph. He decided, I'd rather sell him into slavery than kill him. There could have been a a check in Judah, and he might have uh, been disturbed that his brothers wanted to kill Joseph. Maybe this hit home, and he's like, "Eh, I don't really want to be around these guys could be the reason but ultimately we don't know why judah ultimately departed from his brothers and from his family but we do know one thing that when judah departed he started making some mistakes see i think this was the first problem judah departing from his brethren he left his accountability, and it ultimately led him into sin, which brings me to the first of four problems. Problems. <laughs> Hopefully they're not problems. Well, they kind of are problems, but they're points. Uh, problems with Judah. Uh, point number one of four, don't, don't depart from accountability. Don't depart from accountability. Judah left his accountability, and right off the bat, he falls into sin accountability in our faith, in our Christian walk is crucial. Uh, Webster uh, defines accountability like this, an obligation or willingness to accept responsibility or account for one's actions. Do you have accountability in your life? Do you realize how badly you need accountability? See, a relationship with Christ isn't just a relationship with Christ, it's a relationship with the body of Christ, with other believers. And yes, we can lean on and depend on the Lord, but we're also called to, in some capacity, lean on and depend on brothers and sisters in the Lord. Accountability is a must. If you don't have accountability, then who are you confessing your sins to? 
You might say, well, the Bible says confess your sins to God. That's true. In first John chapter one, verse nine, it says that if we confess our sins to God, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. When we confess to God, we're forgiven. But how are you healed? The Bible says confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. It's James chapter 5, verse 16. It says just that. Yes, we confess to God for forgiveness, but we confess to one another for healing. Because we can be forgiven and not healed. But when we confess our sins to one another, now that brother knows or sister knows the specific sin that, they're, that we're struggling with, and they're able to hold us accountable to not walk in that sin anymore it's like a second pair of eyes because the reality of it is we've all done it we can act like god's not there and we can do sins in the secret place knowing that god's omnipresent and he's all knowing that he's right there and he sees everything that we're doing but sometimes we can convince ourselves that he's not that he doesn't see But when we confess those sins to one another, to a brother or a sister that we trust in the Lord, now we have a second pair of eyes that can help us overcome that specific sin. Because you know if you've confessed that sin in in front of that person, you're not going to commit that sin in front of that person because you know that if you do, they're going to call you out on it. So accountability, it's absolutely crucial to our faith. See, if we don't seek accountability, we fall into this other issue, this other problem that the Bible clearly warns us about. The word's called isolation. And in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 2, Proverbs 18, verse 2, we hear this warning about a man falling into first isolation and then ultimately sin in proverbs chapter 18 verse 1 says a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire he rages against all wise judgment see a man who isolates himself a man who gets away departs from their brethren from their church body in this case he goes against all wisdom why because when we isolate ourselves when we hide in the secret place when we're not praying in the secret place but hiding we end up falling into sin because we don't have accountability and that's exactly what happens to judah in this text look at look at this that second part of verse 38, it says he visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hurrah. Okay, Adulam was pretty close to where his family resi- resided at this time. It was actually only eight miles away, but he starts hanging out with this guy who's a Canaanite. This guy doesn't share the same faith as Judah. And this is the next place that he goes wrong he starts hanging out with someone that doesn't share his same faith the bible speaks clearly about not being or about um it says don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers now that's not just with a relationship guy girl that's friends too if we hang out with people that don't share our same faith 
Not that you can't have friends of different faiths, but if you're constantly hanging out with pagans, you're going to become a pagan. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, that bad company corrupts good morals. It doesn't matter how spiritual we are. It doesn't matter how, how, how moral we believe we are. Or how great our relationship with God is, as great as it is, if we hang out with people that don't share our faith, that don't have that relationship, it's just a matter of time before our good morals become bad morals and we start to fall into sin. You'll only be as spiritual as the people you surround yourself with. That's a biblical truth. Genesis chapter 38 Picking it up in verse 2. So Judah, he's hanging out with his Canaanite. And look at the next thing that he does. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son. And she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son. And called his name Shelah. He was at... Chizib when she bore him. So we see immediately he starts hanging out with this Canaanite guy. Then he marries a Canaanite woman, which we already know was not to be done. Remember how much uh, Esau's parents were grieved when he married Canaanite women. It caused a lot of problems. That's why they sent Jacob back to the land of Laban so that he could find a woman of the same general faith and lineage, if you will. So Judah, he falls into sin. He marries this Canaanite woman. And now he has these three sons. And if you look at verse 7, we see what happens. Sorry, verse 6. We see what happens to these sons. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So his firstborn, he has her, uh, has him marry this woman named Tamar. But Ur, verse 7, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. So we don't know exactly what Ur did. It doesn't say that he had one act of wickedness. The Bible defines him as being wicked. So there was probably a lot of things that he did building up to this point that God actually had him killed. Now, this is interesting. We're also going to see, not to ruin the story, but Onan dies as well, his second son. And we see these two sons are killed by the Lord. And we see the specific reasons why they're killed. But I also personally believe there's a bigger reason for why these sons are taken out. See, there's a specific promise to Judah, a specific blessing that his father pours out on him in Genesis chapter 49, as he blesses all of the men that make up the 12 tribes of Israel. He has a special blessing for Judah in Genesis chapter 49, picking it up in verse eight. It says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. 
He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. There's so much here. And really uh, a prophecy concerning Christ. But I want to point out one thing. He says the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Meaning Judah would, uh, would be the authority, would be the ruler. There would be someone in the lineage of Judah that would rule and reign over Israel. We see that completely fulfilled through the Messiah through Jesus Christ, but Judah and his lineage, they were called to be leaders over God's people. The first two sons that were born were both killed. I believe other than the specific reasons why they were killed, God wouldn't have these two sons be rulers, be in authority over his people. So we see the first one, Ur, he's killed because of his wickedness. And look at verse 8. Sorry, Genesis chapter 38, verse 8. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. This is interesting. Well, we need to know and note that the tradition of the day was if uh, the oldest son or an older son, uh, if he died and left a widow, the next oldest son was called to marry and impregnate that widow. And that first son would belong to really the son that died. Okay, the husband that died and it would really be like his lineage being carried on. So this first son, if they would have had it, it would have technically traditionally been Ur's son, not Onan's. We see this actually um, reiterated in Deuteronomy chapter 25. What was tradition really becomes uh, law, if you will, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. It says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. It was so the older brother could continue his lineage. But this wouldn't be Onan's son. This was an act of sacrifice. He's marrying this woman that likely he doesn't want to marry. It appears here. Um, But then he has to have this son that not only isn't going to carry his name, but he's going to have to take care of. He's going to have to father this child that in a way isn't even his. So he emits on the ground and God kills him. Why did God kill him? He didn't kill him specifically because of the act of emission on the ground. Okay. 
It was the heart behind it and the direct rebellion and disobedience to his father, Judah. This was what was culturally, culturally, traditionally, and we'll see even in God's eyes what was supposed to happen so that the older brother's lineage could be carried on. Onan knows this, gets this direction from his father and he disobeys it. And because he disobeys it, because he rebels, God has him killed. Now, Onan, the interesting thing is, he had no problem sleeping with Tamar. He was fine to do that, but he did have a problem with impregnating her. He wanted all the fun of the sexual experience, but he didn't want the responsibility of raising a child. And we see this as so common today in the era we live in. Men, many men, are okay with the sexual experience. They want to sleep with women, but they don't want the responsibility of raising a child. And this causes so many problems in so many communities, so many countries. We see women uh, abandoned by their husband or the man that, it, they impre- uh, that impregnated them. Uh, the man goes off, wants nothing to do with the child or the wife. Now the lady or the mother is forced to raise the children on their own. And they're literally forced to be the leaders of their household. Now God, he said, since the cursed and reiterated throughout the Bible, that just as Christ is head over the church, man is supposed to be head over the woman. Not because he's a better leader, just because God said. And there's a lot to that. But we see when Men like Onan uh, leave the family and that order's out of place. See, God's a God of order. And when that order in the household is out of place, when it's not right, the family's not going to be right. And it's not right to just desire the sexual encounter, but neglect or forget what the sexual experience is, is for. It's for making children and Onan, he neglects this. He's not willing to take responsibility and be obedient to what his father told him. Genesis chapter 38, verse 11, says, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law remain, sorry, he said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So Shelah is actually, uh, it appears, not of age to marry. He's younger. We don't know exactly how young. But uh, Judah uses that reason to say, hey, Tamar, you go back to your father's house. Go stay with your family. And when Shelah's of age, then, then you can marry him. We'll see Judah, he doesn't follow through with this, and we could probably understand that, right? Maybe he thinks Tamar's cursed. Both of his sons that married her or went into her are now dead. He probably doesn't want Shayla to die. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 38, verse 12. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hurrah, the Adulamite. Now, we see that Judah's wife dies. So Judah, 
quite frankly, is fair game, if you will. But it says that they go up to shear their sheep. Look at verse 13. And it was told Tamar saying, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown and she was not given to him as a wife. So we see here that Judah, he goes up to shear his sheep. What is that? It's just cutting off the wool of the sheep. Now, this was uh, typically done in Palestine in that region in late March. And this was like a time of festivity, a time of celebration. And many of the more wealthy masters would bring their friends. And this was like, a yeah, they were just celebrating. They were having a good time, just guys being guys and obviously getting into some things that they probably shouldn't have look at verse yeah so 14 rereading that it says so she took off her widow's garments covered herself so she's making herself appear like a prostitute she saw that shayla was grown so shayla was likely there with judah and his friend for this celebration and sheep shearing uh thing that they were doing And this is huge, super important that Tamar realizes that that Shayla is not going to be given to her or that she's not going to be given to Shayla because technically Tamar is under the headship of Judah. Tamar can't just go out and marry some other stranger. She can't just go out and say, uh, the Israelite thing didn't work. I'm going to go get me a Canaanite. It didn't work like that because she was married into Judah's family. Judah was the one that had to provide for her. If he had it, another son, he was to provide for her a son. So she's stuck between a rock and a hard place. Shayla is her only option to be married unless she comes up with a different option, which we'll see. Now, Judah put Tamar in a really rough spot. To be a widow in that day and age was, was extremely difficult. But it was one thing to be a widow. To be a widow without children, you'd be lucky to make it. It was uh, an extremely difficult situation for a woman for her a husband to die and then not have children because of the culture and men and women and the woman not having first the man and then not the children. She had no one to provide for her, no one to help her. And we see the difficulty also expressed in another section of scripture. I think it's a great example in Luke chapter seven. In Luke chapter seven, verse 12. I'll give you some context. Look at verse 11 if you're there. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Now it happened the day after that he went, this is Jesus, into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he heard, when he, sorry, when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. 
the only son of this mother is dead. This woman is a widow. Okay, so first off, she lost her husband. Now she's lost her only son. She's ultimately lost her livelihood. She has no hope. She has, unless she has other family, really no one in the direct immediate family to take care of her. This is the epitome of hopelessness. So she's mourning, she's grieving deeply because she's set up for failure. This is basically the position that Judah is putting Tamar in. No husband, Onan admitted on the ground, so no children. So she's, yeah, at her father's house, but that's, that's not ideal. She wants a family of her own, and who knows how long her father's going to survive. So she too is put in this position of hopelessness. Judah, he's not taking care of this widow in the way that he's supposed to, and it's going to cause big problems, which brings me to the second point. Don't disregard widows. Don't disregard widows. Judah disregards this widow, and again, big problems occur. In fact, we're supposed to help them. In James chapter 1, in James chapter 1, if you flip with me there, James chapter 1, verse 27, it says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. We're called to help orphans. We're called to help widows in their trouble, in their need. Tamar is in need and Judah is not helping her. We're called to help those that can't help themselves in that specific season. So Judah neglected to help Tamar. So Tamar was forced to do whatever it takes to help herself. And that's exactly what she does. And that's exactly why she dressed the way that she did and veiled her face. Genesis chapter 38, verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her, by the way, and said, please let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your sign it in cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. So Tamar dresses up like a harlot, okay, being a little sneaky, a little conniving. But we actually see here in the Hebrew, this word harlot is a specific type of harlot. It's a temple prostitute. Okay, and a temple prostitute in the Canaanite culture was actually a respectable position believe it or not. So she's dressing as a temple prostitute, and this really isn't looked down upon in the Canaanite religion. It was a, it was a respectable position. But we see in Judah's eyes, in the eyes of the Israelites, obviously in the eyes of God, this was not an honorable act in what she did. 
in Genesis chapter 38, picking it up in verse 19. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend to the Adulamite to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who has who is openly by the roadside? And he said, There was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be ashamed. For I set this young goat and you cannot find her. This is very interesting. Judah's worried about being shamed. And he's worried about being shamed specifically for not keeping his word to the harlot. He tried to send her the goat. The Adulamite couldn't find uh, Tamar. He couldn't find the harlot. And he's really concerned about his word to the harlot about a goat. But he doesn't appear to be concerned with his word to his daughter-in-law about his son. It's interesting how one thing is important to him in one case, but in another case, it's not. Little did he know that harlot, the harlot and his daughter-in-law were the very same person. Genesis chapter 38, verse 24. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Because she played the harlot. But Judah, he was the one that was a part of this harlotry. So there's this double standard here. It's okay for Judah to sleep with a harlot, but it's not okay for Tamar to be a harlot. We need to be careful how we judge. He's willing to judge her. In fact, he says, let's burn her. Judgment. It looks great on someone until we realize we're guilty of the same exact thing. Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2. He says... Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for whatever in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. He's saying the very same flaws you see in another individual are being pointed out to you because you likely struggle with and commit those same exact sins. That's the case with Judah. And we also see another case of this in Second Samuel chapter 12 with King David. And I absolutely love this story. I think it really hits home the point. In Second Samuel chapter 12, now to give you some context, remember this is the time that David had slept with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed. Now Nathan's going to approach David and look at what he says. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men. He gives him this story to hit home this point. There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing 
except one little ooh lamb, which he had brought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, the only lamb that he had, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. You are that man. That's exactly what you did to Uriah. He had one lamb. He had one wife. He had Bathsheba. You had all these wives. You had all these concubines. And you took his one little lamb. You took his one wife. And not only that, you had him killed. David, when he hears this story, he says, this man needs to be killed. He needs to be put to death. David is quick to judge this man until Nathan says, you are that man. When he realizes, oh my gosh, I am that man. He recognizes, wow, I should be killed for what I've done. But this is what we do. This is our tendency when we hear a story or we see something happen played out in our lives. It's so easy for us to be quick to judge and say, they deserve this. Throw the book at them. Until we realize we do the same thing and we're just as guilty. And then we want God's grace. No, no, don't judge me. Judge them. We always look great covered in grace, but they always look great covered in judgment. And it's a double standard. That's what Judah's doing. Picking it back up in Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38, verse 25. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. Remember, she has his possessions. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet and the and cord and staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shelah, my son. And he never knew her again. So look at what Judah does. At first he says, burn her. And now he gets the whole story and he has a change of heart. He realizes that he is that man, just like David. We can't make assumptions or be quick to judge if we don't have the whole story if we don't have the big picture we like to act impulsively and judge other people but more often than not we're judging with a very small portion of information which brings me to the third point don't be quick to judge don't be quick to judge in james Chapter 1, back in James, right after Hebrews. I'm telling myself this. <laughs> James chapter 1, uh, verse 19. It says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow 
to speak and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You hear what he says there? Be swift to hear. Make sure you hear the whole story. Don't go judging people. Don't be quick to wrath when you just have a little bit of information. Be quick to hear. Be slow to speak. Be slow to wrath. We need to hear the whole story before we can make a proper judgment before we can make an informed judgment most of the arguments let's be honest most of the arguments that we get in with our significant other our good friend or our family member or whoever it is is when something happens and we react impulsively because we assume it was one thing before we get the big story and we assume this person might have done something intentionally to hurt us Or they did it because of this thing and our perspective is just very narrow. But when we talk things out, when we get the whole story, when we see their perspective, we have uh, often a change of heart. Not Not that we're ridden of frustration, but we begin to see more clearly. We begin to have a more accurate judgment of the situation. Judah, right off the bat, burn her until he has the whole story that he's the one that committed harlotry with her. Now, it's easy to get angry. It's easy to get impulsive. Imagine if you had a a, a son and your daughter-in-law was a prostitute and you found out about it. That, of course, would make anyone angry if you can imagine it. But listening to the whole story, it requires patience. And if Judah, as we'll see later, if Judah had had acted on his impulsive judgment, there would have been serious, long-lasting consequences, which I'll bring up a little bit later. Genesis chapter 38, verse 27. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in the womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand and his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. This is very interesting. Uh, It's it's somewhat similar to um, what happened with Jacob and Esau when they were in the womb. There appears to be this struggle against each other and Zerah's arm comes out. She ties the thread, but then Perez pushes through and he's actually the firstborn. And we'll see that he is actually the one that receives the blessings. Now Judah, he has these two boys now. He has Shelah, but now he has these two. I'm certain that this wasn't Judah's plan to sleep with his daughter-in-law and have these children. But it was God's plan. God had a hand in all of this. Not that this is exactly how it was supposed to happen, but God used it. He would use one of these children to keep Judah's lineage going and ultimately bring forth 
the Messiah. The Messiah would come through Perez. When we look at both genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3, we see Perez is a descendant of Jesus Christ. If Perez isn't born, God would have come up with another way. But it's interesting how he uses this mistake for his glory. Which brings me to the fourth point. God uses our mistakes for his glory. God uses our mistakes for his glory. Judah sinned. Tamar sinned. And God used this sin to bring forth the Messiah. That is amazing. It's astounding to see that God truly does make all things work together for good. It's Romans chapter 8 verse 28. It says just that. And we know that, uh, that God makes all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Judah is the called according to his purpose because Judah would be the one whose lineage must go on because the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. God uses everything. He even uses our sin. Again, he uses our mistakes for his glory. Now, this isn't, isn't an excuse to sin. Well, God's going to use it anyways. I might as well just while out. No, that's not the proper understanding of this. It's recognizing that even our mistakes God uses. See, I have an addictive past and I was severely addicted, addicted to, to, to heroin and cocaine and many other drugs. Now, God used my past, he used those mistakes as an avenue for me to be able to reach out to and relate to people who struggle with addiction as well. So he used my mistake for his glory, but if I have the mindset, well, he used my addiction, I might as well go back being an addict because he used it. That's ridiculous, right? God uses our mistakes for his glory, but that's not an excuse to continue making the mistakes and continue following back in the sin. God uses it all, but don't allow that to lead you to continue in sin. There's still consequences for our sin. Just know that God is greater than our sin. This passage, it's, it's so interesting. It's wild. Again, it seems almost like it's out of place. But I believe there's a message for us in this, that God ultimately uses everything. He's bigger than your failures. He's bigger than your successes. And he'll use the good, the bad, and the ugly parts of your life ultimately for his glory. We can't allow that truth of scripture to again lead us to sin, but allow it to lead us to recognize the goodness and sovereignty of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. No thing goes to waste with the Lord. He uses it all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, again, throughout this book, we see flawed men that you use in profound ways. And again, every time it gives me so much hope. God, I pray that this text would settle in our hearts, that we would meditate on these things, that we would recognize what we shouldn't do and what we should do. Lord, that regardless of what we do do, you're going to use it for your glory. But I pray that the truth of this would lead us to 
pursue righteous living, knowing that we can only do that by the power of your Spirit. God, so help us. Help us live for you, Lord. In that, help us, remind us of how good you are, how sovereign, how gracious. God, we're just sinners. We bring nothing to you but our sin. And you do something with it. You do something with us. And it's nothing short of miraculous. God, so help us, grow us. In Jesus' name.